I feel like you can't call it an NRL magic round without magicians. How would that translate in the hard-hitting world of rugby league? I think they'd be good with the sleight of hand, the yep. deft passes. Maybe um, the dummy? Yep, but when it comes to putting their body on the line, I think they'd probably get really seriously injured. We need to do something about the amount of time it takes a Sinbin player to exit the field. What about any player getting Sinbin for the Titans? We say, if you get off in the next 10 seconds... We'll sign you up to another team. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of The Voluntary Tackle, the only NRL podcast still counting the costs of an expensive sleeve sponsorship deal with Cody Walker for State of Origin. Not the best 100k I've ever spent, but uh, we have received a boost in listenership from people who build stadium tunnels, so yin and yang. So today on the show we'll be dissecting all the big issues in rugby league with the precision of a Jack Whiten flick pass. Plus, we'll have a couple more interviews later in the show, uh, one with the original Wolfman of Rugby League, that's right, former referee Greg McCullum, as well as a chat with one of South Sydney's favourite sons. But first, we have some breaking news. The Voluntary Tackle has just received word that former New South Wales 5'8", Cody Walker, is still missing. For more on this developing story, we're actually going to cross live to our roving reporter on the ground in London, Alan Steve. Alan, is there any more you can tell us? Thank you, Eamon. Well, the police here are remaining very tight-lipped about the details, but I can tell you this. The New South Wales team officials have been trying to find Cody since the third minute of State of Origin on Wednesday night when he first was reported missing and are now obviously very concerned for his welfare. It was obviously very unusual, uh, Alan, for a player to disappear mid-match. Do the police have any leads and um, also why the fuck are you in London? No concrete leads, Eamon, as yet. Uh, there was a potential sighting made uh, to New Scotland Yard earlier today, uh, but it turns out it was just another person absolutely shitting it on the tube. He's been released without charge after questioning. Um, as for why I'm in London, Eamon, well, I have it on good authority that Cody is more likely to turn up in a location as far away from Queensland as possible. Uh, so I've jumped on a plane to the Northern Hemisphere in the hope of cracking the case. I see. Well, that, uh, well, I guess that all makes sense. Uh, what should the public do if they spot Cody Walker? Well, Eamon, the police have told me not to approach him, not because he's dangerous or anything, he's far from that, obviously, but because he might freak out a bit, especially, they've told me, if you're wearing maroon-coloured clothing. Well, thanks for the update there, Alan, and of course, stay safe. Thanks, Eamon. Well, just as the Blues saw off the greatest Queensland team to don a jersey since the infamous Wally Lewis cloning controversy of 1986, a new crop of equally rabid Maroons players have hoed into view. Game one hung in the balance on Wednesday. That was until a misguided Jack White and flick pass killed New South Wales' chances faster than a poisonous Krispy Kreme donut would claim the life of Clive Palmer. And while the state of New South Wales collectively abuses Jack for throwing the pass and the state of Queensland finishes off a bronze statue immortalising the moment, some have called for restraint. This has especially been the case for those calling for Whiten to have his left arm forcibly amputated. Now, uh, for my two cents, I'm simply not convinced that taking a Saudi Arabian approach to rugby league training is the best way forward for the Blues. 
I also think New South Wales are best served by sticking with its policy of exiling players we no longer want. You know, a bit like that time we ordered a restraining order against Mitchell Pearce and permanently banished him to Raymond Terrace. But look, Game 1 of Origin obviously wasn't all Jack's fault. It's a team game after all, and it's never the fault of just one person. It was also Latrell Mitchell's fault. But look, I could sit here and go through the ins and outs of why the Blues lost, but let's face it, there's already been plenty of analysis of the match done already by other NRL shows, so in its continual quest to be a little bit different, um, a little bit weird, uh, just that touch more inaccurate, the voluntary tackle will present its postmortem of the New South Wales Blues performance through the guise of television. So here is our take on each individual who played last Wednesday. James Tedesco, Seinfeld, amazing to watch each and every time. Josh Adokar, Modern Family, still a pretty good standard, but not as good as the early stuff. Josh Morris, the Hey Hey It's Saturday reboot, pretty good to see for nostalgia's sake, but um, you just know it's not gonna be around for very long. Latrell Mitchell, the Seinfeld finale, expected something amazing, but all you got was an absolute abomination. Cody Walker, Scrubs, Heard a lot of great things about it, but still yet to see it. Nathan Cleary. Game of Thrones. So much hype about it, so it can never really live up to the expectations. David Clemmer. SBS World News. Just really confronting and tough to watch, but so important it's there. Damien Cook. Breaking Bad. An amazing watch that you just have to binge, but it just goes by so fast. Paul Vaughan. Q&A. Not always a joy to watch, but you'd miss it if it wasn't there. Boyd Cordner. The Wire. Just gritty as fuck. Tyson Frizzell. 60 Minutes. Was way better when it used to have balls. Jake Trebojevich. Black Mirror. Haven't been watching it for very long, but I already know I'm going to love it forever. Jack Whiten. Embarrassing Bodies. My curiosity made me want to watch it, but now that it's all over, I have regrets. Angus Crichton. The SBS test pattern. Cameron Murray. That episode of Game of Thrones with the Starbucks coffee cup blooper. That one major blunder just ruined the whole thing for me. Payne Haas. MasterChef. Some of it was attractive to watch, but in other parts, he just played like Matt Preston. And now it's time for our interview with former NRL referee Greg McCullum. Thanks for um for sparing some time to come on the Voluntary Tackle podcast today. No worries at all, my pleasure. I thought I might just start by talking a bit about yourself. How did you first yeah, um, get involved in refereeing? I was uh, a failed uh, coach. I, I was a player, but I got uh, ill with glandular fever when I was 19 and um, had one season coaching the under-7s and missed out on the next season because one of the fathers was on uh, the committee that picked the coach, so uh, I missed out there. <laughs> and then... Uh, Ran into a guy that uh, coached me at school uh, who'd become a referee at 65 years of age. So he talked me into becoming a referee. So it was probably my third choice to be involved in the game, but certainly um, I wouldn't have swapped it for anything. So there's a bit of serendipity or fate involved, and it sounds like you might have, might have learned a bit about uh, team politics as well at the same time. I did about, 
about politics and how things can um, easily come your way, but they can easily be taken away from you as well, and that's sort of served me in good stead right through the season. Greg, refereeing, is it? would you consider it a tough job? Uh, it has its moments. It, um, you grow into it. There's no doubt about that. Um, it's something you can't go out and say, well, I'm, go- I'm going to become you know, the leading referee. I'm going to referee test matches or origin. You need to go through the stages, and if they're fairly structured, you get good support along the way. Uh, but the higher up you go in um, being involved in refereeing, the more challenging it becomes because you, f- you quickly realise that for every um, one referee that makes it successfully uh, into the top echelon, uh, there's probably 100 or 150 that don't. So it's a very uh, competitive industry. And uh, if you want to be at the top, you've got to sacrifice and you've got to go with the, with the punches, as I said before. Do you remember your first game? Was it was it a daunting experience the first time you ran out and uh, you know officiated a match? No, it was funny because I, I always once I decided to referee, I, I did some trial games in the Manly area uh, when I wasn't a referee. I wasn't qualified, so I used to run around there. They were happy to have me in the trials because it was just an extra person to be able to to referee the trial games. And then I got my ticket, and I do remember my first. I remember the first game I played. In the first game I coached, and I ref- certainly refereed, uh, and I remember that um, was down at St Matthew's Farm at uh, Cromer, and it was an under uh, sevens game, and I'll never forget it. What was your strength as a ref? You think? Um, I think it was an understanding of the game. As I said, I played it for a number of years and um, was reasonably successful at it because I understood what the game was all about, and I think. From then on, it was the ability to listen and I think the ability then to uh, talk to players and, and I suppose have a good relationship with them. But having the understanding that, you know, you can't have a game of rugby league, certainly without a referee, but you can't have a game of rugby league without players playing the game. And I suppose my um, hardline uh, approach to foul play was something that I think carried me through, particularly in the latter years of, of getting into um, grade uh, from the juniors, but right through my career, you know, I didn't accept that you know, players needed to go out there and commit fouls on other players, and, and that's part of the game. So, Greg, is there a chance that uh, there are fans that go, oh, it was Greg McCullum's fault that the Biff's gone? <laughs> oh, a little bit, and, and, of course, my role with the judiciary probably played a big part in that. Um, I, I don't Personally, I don't agree with um, the automatic sin binning for, for punching. I think... Not that I condone it. I think it was probably an overreaction. And I think um, it took something, that confrontation, that physical um, collision between players, I think that took something away. And what we got in its place was what I would consider to be quite embarrassing incidents of, of pushing and shoving and slapping and all those yeah, sorts of it's, things. It's uh, a weird look, isn't it? Yeah, Especially when a... Um, it is a weird look. Yeah, like a halfback comes up to a front rower and slaps him on the face. It just, just, just doesn't sit right. Yeah. A winger runs in 50 metres and you know, pushes a, a front row in the back. You know, I, I don't think that's right. But then, look, I, I don't condone violence at all. As I said, I had a hard-line stance as a referee. Yep. Um, but I, I just think we've got to be really careful as administrators of the game. And I was an administrator in England for a long time. And you've got to be really careful how you change the rules mm. and, and the impact that those rule changes have. And as I said, I'm not, I'm not a big uh, supporter of the punch and you're in the bin. 
Um, the shoulder charge issue was slightly different because there was a lot of evidence to suggest that there were some serious head collisions taking place. Um, but again, I don't know whether every shoulder charge is warrant, it warrants a, a penalty either. So, you know, I believe that they're all parts of the game. You know, a yeah. shoulder charge was always part of the game in that you're not, you can knock the opponent to the ground, provided you don't make contact with the head. Um, yeah. but, but then I was also, um, I saw a lot of statistics to show that missed shoulder charges ended up in fairly significant head collisions, which caused concussions. So what I would you like to it. see, Greg, in, I guess in terms of instead of having a, um, a blanket rule about sin binning someone for striking, what would, the, I guess, the Greg McCullum approach be if you were making those decisions? Oh, I think put it back in the hands of the referee. The referee is still the best player, uh, best person on the field to watch players and the way that they conduct themselves um I, I think the game became quite um sterilized over um you know the late ni- 90s into the 2000s i thought you know the the violence in the game of the 70s and 80s was gone and i think uh, teams understood that if they committed fouls they would be uh, possibly short of a player or they'll be penalized so i'd like to put it back into the hands of the referees yep. in terms of dealing with Whatever happens on the field, they deal with. I always felt, Greg, that you know, you're know you right. Everyone was sort of getting on the same page with that, except for John Hopawade. <laughs> you always get the odd one. The <laughs> odd ball right. in the game would <laughs> would do that. Um, you know, I, no one can condone the way that John Hopawade's conducted himself no, <laughs> in a, those incidents. Yeah, it's a tough, it's a tough one to defend, isn't it? Um, but it is. Yeah. Well, I, I was on the match review committee when we charged him for that... Um, flying forearm on Keith Galloway and you know I, I think it almost finished Keith Galloway's career that was how serious that was and I, I, I had I, no hesitation in putting him out for uh, 16 weeks for that. No I think that was a right call and I, it was almost I think unanimous even from memory the Manly Club I think thought no that's that's too far right so yep. to, to this day that's always down in my mind as the, one of the heaviest collisions I remember ever seeing because he was at full flight in the air. Oh, it was an assault he assaulted him mid-air you know and and, um, you know, I, I think it took Keith Galloway a number of years to recover from that. Greg, you mentioned earlier that, you know, that one, one of your strengths is the fact that you understood the plight of players on the field. Does that come, do you think, uh, because that, you know, you used to play yourself? Do you think referees should have to have had a bit of a, an experience playing the game? You know, again, it's the old saying that, you know, um, good players don't become good coaches and um, certainly... Um, players don't become good referees because they've played the game, but I think it plays a really important part in the foundation of your makeup in involved in it. Yeah. You go through a lot, as I said, to become a referee, you go through a lot of um, analysing, you go through a lot of self-evaluation, uh, and I think you do understand the game. And I think, um, you know, your good referees, I think, have been those that have played, um, but don't ever be put off if you want to become a referee just because you haven't played. Um, it shouldn't stop you from becoming, you know, a, a referee. And the females show that all the time. You know, the girls haven't played uh, any significant level of the game, but they're coming through as really good referees because they understand what they're doing. Yeah, for sure. And, of course, even that's changing because the, the women's game is getting a higher profile these days. Yeah. So we may even see more women coming through the referee ranks. I hope so. I think it's great. I think um, women bring um, almost a soothing um, part to the game. You know, I think guys these days tend to respect them pretty well. I don't see any uh, player um, really 
um, go aggressively towards a woman. I think it's a really good thing. Yeah, and you know, it's a funny symmetry, Greg. I noticed, um, you know, with a lot of the lollipop people around Sydney, um, they've replaced them with a lot of women because they've noticed they drive like motorists don't react as aggressively towards them. So maybe no, that'd no, be no. something for the for the NRL to look at as well. Yeah, I think so. I think it's um, the rugby league is a great game in that it gives everybody. Uh, no matter what sex they are and what background they they come from, an opportunity to be involved either as a, a player, coach, or you know, uh, probably uh, more effectively as a referee. I think it's a great um, way that the the NRL, in particular, views um, the total community in as a prospect of being involved in the game. Um, you talked about self-reflection too, Greg. Um, now this is an opportunity. I guess can you ever remember a time in your refereeing career where you had to think about it later and you go, mm, I really got that call wrong. Like, has there ever been oh, a point where you've, you've definitely gone, oh, gosh, I shouldn't have made that no, call? Definitely. It, um, it, it cost me a grand final, I think, in 1988. I was um, doing all the main games and I, I refereed Penrith and Manly at, at Penrith Park uh, when they opened up the new grandstand there. And um, it was a tough game. Manly were, were fighting for a top, I think, top two finish. And the Panthers were fighting for a top four finish. And Mark Geyer made contact with Dale Shearer 10 minutes from the end of the game. And Shearer had just come back from a broken jaw. And Shearer was on the ground and I saw the tacklers being late and um, rushed into the decision, <laughs> which yeah. I now regret. I put him in the bin for 10 minutes and as I looked up, the touch judge from the far side of the field. People remember the day that... A touch judges used to come on the field. Yeah, that's right. Raised to report something, and as he came towards me, he was shaking his head. And I said, "Oh, what's the matter, um, um, Peter?" Peter Ryan was the the ref, touch judge's name, and he said, "Oh, Greg, you hit him high." And oh. of course, hitting him high and late—that's a dismissal. And I'd only put him in the bin for ten. And I knew exactly when that happened uh, that my prospects of refereeing my first grand final disappeared. So you actually was a, uh, you, sorry, Greg. I so say you realised that in the moment, did you? As soon as he came on and he said to me, he's hit him uh, high, because I, I saw it as a late tackle. And to this day, I only, from the angle I was at, there was never any um, concern or consideration from me that he'd hit him high. But the touch judge saw it from the other side. And, of course, the video doesn't lie. <laughs> I went home and looked at the video, hung my head, and I knew that was the end. And I went from probably the number one rated referee going into the finals um, to number four. Oh, no. uh, so it, re it really impacted on me, and I'll never forget it. And um, I wake up some nights in a cold sweat seeing Mark Guy's face. No. You know, we've actually had MG <laughs> on the show before. I wish I knew no, that great before. Guy, great character. Yeah, great <laughs> character. But um, by the crikeys, he was a tough man out there. He was oh, a yeah. tough player. Look, that's a good segue, Greg, actually. I was going to ask you about, um, I guess, teams that were hard to control or even players that were hard, hard to control. People like MG, obviously, a lot of the time he speaks about, you know, his coaches giving him licence to sort of cause mayhem on the field. Have you got anyone in particular that you remember just being really difficult to control? Look, back in, in my era, you had a lot of, um, I suppose, um, bullets to your gun with players. You know, you could put them in the bin and no one would bat an eyelid. You know, if, mm. if Steve Roach would come up to you and say, you're going to be kidding. Because <laughs> Steve had a very high voice. <laughs> you're going to be kidding. So well, you're in the bin. And no one would batter an eyelid. Or yep. Steve Roach has been sent to the sin bin again. But to put a player in the bin these days, it becomes a, a major catastrophe in the game, doesn't it? it mm. And players that committed fouls were, were sent off, you know. And 
I suppose in that regard, the referee had more control over what was happening uh, out on the field in his own hands rather than in the hands of a, a bunker official or anybody else. Um, and as a result, you know, you learnt um, to control the game yourself. And that's what players wanted. And I refereed in an era where Balmain and Souths and Canterbury were the three really aggressive sides. And every time Souths played Balmain, I was appointed to the game or Souths versus Canterbury. Um, but you then got to learn what you were looking for and without prejudging anything. Um, you know, when Mario got tackled and Benny was there, <laughs> well, you were there too, you know. You yep. you stayed at the play of the ball until it was done and moved on to the next confrontation. And, you know, you got to knew, know the players and you got to know how you had to handle it and then the players got to know how you were going to handle it too. And that's where you do start to get that relationship going. You know, there was a, there was a large amount of respect. Yep. Uh, between the players and the referees, but it was earned respect. It wasn't demanded respect or respect that was given lightly. It was earned. Did you um, like relish the opportunity to kind of referee the more aggressive teams? Like it sounds as yes. though you had a bit of a strategy ahead of the time. You knew who the the candidates were going to be that might cause mischief. So did you actually look forward to that opportunity? I did, and whenever those games were coming up, I you know I sort of penciled them in my own mind. There was a likelihood that I'd get appointed to those games and it suited my style and it suited, um, I think, the game at the time to have uh, one or two referees that they could rely upon mm. uh, that would go out there and take control of the situation and, and we used to do it. And it was, you know, you never thought twice about it. You know, it was either you or them in terms of, um, of being um, there to be appointed the next week. So it's... Um, it was either a survive or perish. And who were you among your contemporaries, Greg, were good referees at controlling those kind of games? Oh, look, Mick Stone was uh, highly rated at the time. Um, Graham Annesley, of course, the, the um, head of football for the NRL, was a very close colleague of mine, and uh, we refereed um, in the same era. Bill Harrigan came along halfway through it, uh, sent shockwaves, of course, because Bill, we were all at training just doing it at our own pace. And, of course, Bill arrived as a member of the tactical response uh, <laughs> squad, super fit. So we all had to pick it up. And, and in a lot of ways, Bill Harrigan revolutionised um, refereeing with his fitness. And we all had to um, step up our game. Otherwise, Bill would have rushed away with us. And, and he did. You know, he did three grand finals very quickly. Um, but I suppose that the thing that I'm most proud of is that um, once he did his three grand finals, I knocked him off and did three after that. So there you go. You that got was something. That I, I, <laughs> yeah, and I, and I put it down. Look, I increased my fitness, but I put it down to the fact that I understood the game really well. You know, and yeah. I, I was able to control games that perhaps Bill had trouble with in that era. Um, you know, it's it's one thing to be fit and and running around, but I knew the rules and I and I knew how to get on with the players. Did you ever think when Bill first arrived, Greg, and was carving it up at training that you might just, I don't know, maybe break a fibula just to bring him down a little bit? <laughs> Look, Bill Bill intimidated everyone in, with his fitness. Um, and Bill was this young, brash guy, you know. Bill was on a mission and um, he had great support from the boss of the referees at the time, Dennis Braybrook. Um, there was one time there, I, I tell the story that there was a group of referees, Graham Annesley, Mick Stone, Dennis Bagarino, John Gosher, and, and our wives would go out for dinner uh, two or three times a year. And 
we were called the first grade squad because we're all in first grade and we all went out to uh, to dinner. Um, and then halfway through the 1986 season when Bill Harrigan hit there, all of us were in reserve grade. We'd all been dropped for some reason and, and we went out for dinner one night, not the first grade panel, but we're all in reserve grade. All at and, once. Uh, yeah, and that was that was Dennis Braybrook coming in and Bill Harrigan, Phil Cooley, Greg Boyd, the guys that had, were coming through the younger brigade and, and us oldies were um, were certainly given notice that the times were changing. But as it worked out, um, I think Kevin Roberts went back to first grade, did the grand final that year, and we all ended up back in first grade the year after. So um, we all had to knuckle down, though. It was a challenge and uh, it was a wake-up call. Greg, was there ever any animosity between, you, you sort of described that as youngies and oldies, was there ever a divide or personality conflicts within the refereeing ranks that, during your day? I'm uh, sure there were personality contacts, uh, conflicts, but we all, in the end, were all referees. We all had to train together. Um, you didn't pick who you were appointed with. You know, you had to go out there as a team. Um, and I think, you know, the successful referees were able to do that. I, I know that some referees struggled with personalities and once they got their appointments and saw they were running with a certain touch judge, they, they you know, head would drop and think, oh, no, I'm you know, not oh, going to get the support I need. But, you know, again, it was one of those things I learned that everybody has levels of ability, everybody has good points. Um, uh, some touch judges would maybe think the same with me. You know, when they were appointed to, to run with me, that there was parts of my game that they probably didn't like. But at the end of it, as long as you stay consistent and true to your... Um, being as a person and as a referee, then uh, success should follow. You finished off your career, mate, uh, on a high, I believe, uh, refereeing the 1994 grand final between the Dogs and the Raiders. Um, I certainly remember it as one of the great grand finals for me, um, other than the fact that I, I remember Mao Meninga putting on a few huge hits as well. Was that up there as one of your most memorable matches? Or if not, what were some of the big games that you can remember and that you were really proud to be a part of? It's a, it's a really good question to think back on. I think being appointed to my first grand final in 92, because uh, it broke that sort of reign of, of Bill Harrigan uh, coming through, Graham Annesley and I were given an opportunity to referee the semi-finals ahead of Bill, and uh, and we both did okay the first week and were retained for the second, and I went on to do the grand final. Um, so that, that was a significant milestone in my career, I think. Uh, I was fortunate. I refereed test matches before I did Origin and Grand Final. So, um, you know, I did four trips to England and refereed at Great Britain and New Zealand because it was all under the neutral referee system. So, you know, I went to there four times and that ultimately led me to go to England to, to live and to work over with the Rugby Football League over there. Uh, and the other one I remember is, you know, your first Origin game. State of Origin was a big thing back in the late 80s and I did my first game, ironically, at the Sydney Football Stadium uh, in front of just 16,000 people. It was a dead rubber game and Queensland uh, flogged New South Wales, so I think 38 points to 16 or something like that and won the series 3-0. Um, whilst it was a memorable game for me, it probably doesn't rate in the memory of too many New South Wales players or supporters. So, no, unfortunately, um, um, Queensland flogging New South Wales could be any game these days, exactly couldn't it? Right, any year, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. But no, look, I have great memories and I have great memories of the people I ran with. I have great memories of, of the players I refereed and and just being part of the game and, and you know being successful at it was just a bonus. 
What about the modern game, Greg? Do you, do you like what you're seeing from the refs so far this year? I know you said your, your close colleague, uh, Graham Annesley's sort of taken over. Uh, my perception is that it's a whole lot better than last year, not to put words in your mouth. How have you found it? Uh, they were, I've got to say, they were grim last year. It was a, a poor year for refereeing. Um, it came on the, a number of poor, poor years. So I thought the referees had lost their uh, composure in terms of applying the rules of the game. It was sort of a a mishmash of interpretation and not wanting to give penalties and they, they lack leadership and the leadership's back this year. Uh, it's far better. I think the everybody in the game, uh, I think, acknowledges that the game is a better game being refereed uh, the way it's being refereed. The problem with refereeing, uh, you cannot go out there and prejudge anything. You know, and if you've got these um, systems that are going to evaluate you, um, in the back of your mind, you know, have I given enough penalties? I've done this and done that. Well, then you can't referee what's in front of you. And I think Graham, to his credit, has taken all that away and gone back to referee what's in front of you. And um, we've still got to find the balance between the bunker and on-field decisions because, you know, every try basically is being referred up to the bunker again. And part of the problem with technology is you you want perfection in a game that's not perfect. And if you send every decision up to the bunker, the bunker will start to make decisions that aren't right. And that's what we've got to protect against. Um, On that that front of technology, I mean, do you, in essence, like having the video ref there? Or would you prefer to see a game where, back in your days, as you said, the referee was more omnipotent, had a lot more power? Do you like the video ref being there or do you... Uh, well, I've got to say I do because I invented it in England. So <laughs> okay, it was over there first in 1995 before it came here. And not many people know that. But it was I didn't do my research, Greg. For the rugby league over there. And um, so, look, I, I, it came in because I was convinced by people in the UK. Um, a guy named Neville Smith, who was an Australian, who was an ex-referee with me at Manly, he was the executive producer of Sky Sports. And he came to me after I'd started the job in England and said, look, can I show you this system? And I looked at it and I sort of like everything. I just shook my head and said, well, that won't work. And he left me the video and I sat down one day in the office and analysed it and thought, well, this could work. But it was only about making decisions in the end goal. And particularly when the ball was loose, bouncing around, because he showed me a whole lot of tries that weren't tries um, or were ruled incorrectly. And from there, it just sort of mushroomed into this overpowering... um, controller of the game and um, look I, I, I it's never going to go away but we've got to make sure that we give as much power as we can to the on-field officials to make decisions and if the odd one's wrong then we have to run with it because they're still getting them wrong in the bunker and we've got to make sure that we don't allow the bunker to get any bigger than what it is at the moment. I love that. And I actually think it's in a pretty good balance this year. As you said, maybe they're going a little bit too regularly uh, to, for some tries, but there was a point where, you know, the eye in the sky was sort of intervening quite regularly in the game. And I, I've always had the opinion that, you know, during that pat, that period, there was probably referees that maybe weren't even watching the game as closely because they knew they could rely upon the, the, the referee technology. And I, I got to get the feeling that, um, you know, empowering the referees has actually made them better. Uh, in the last couple of years. Would you agree with that? Oh, definitely this year. I think it's it's good. Uh, I'd love to see the touch judges go back to actually making a decision. Um, I saw one the other night. 
in the end, the decision's right. It was in origin where um, Oates, in the first uh, half, stood on the touchline. Yep. The touch judge was convinced that he'd done that, but I would have loved to have seen him put his flag up, you know, and make a decision to say, no, he's gone into touch, because that's all part of decision-making. Um, otherwise... Why have people running up and down the touchline if they're not going to make decisions? You know, it's absolutely. Um, I'd love to just see that balance come back a little bit more to all of the people that are involved in the game, uh, touch judges, the um, pocket ref, the main ref, actually continue to make decisions because I think it will then regulate the use of the bunker. And and I know that's looking for utopia, but it's got to be better than sending every decision up to to be cleared by the bunker. How do you feel about the idea, Greg, of the captain's challenge? Do you give that any credit as a potential way to go forward? I sat and watched the semi-final series in the under-20s a few years ago and I saw three decisions challenged and three decisions overturned. And had they not been overturned, the team that benefited from the challenges would have been eliminated. Uh, I think it's a great thing to do. I think, you know, the referee um, is still the best person to make the decision. If he makes the decision, then I think if either side doesn't agree with it or whatever, then they should challenge it, and then the bunker makes the decision. I love it too, because it also it seems to also maybe even relieve some of that bad taste in, in players' mouths when they feel like they've been hard done by. This gives them a little bit of um, power, doesn't it, to go, well, you could challenge it, and if you, if you don't challenge it, then it's sort of on you a little bit as well. Exactly, and, and because it's on the, the coaches and the clubs at the end of the game. They're the ones that make the issues out of it. Um, I, I would give them the opportunity to do that. I, I don't think it's a bad thing to to say, look, let's have a look at this. And um, as I said, the game I watched, there were three decisions, one after the other, that would have eliminated a side from the semifinals had there not been captain's challenge. Yeah, it's certainly got a lot of credit in my view. Um, I've got an interesting... I definitely couldn't have you on the show and not ask you this. If if there was one rule change that you could implement and you had the power to do it in 2019, what would you like to see changed? Look, I think it's more the interpretations. I think the game, the rules of the game are pretty good uh, at the moment. It's the interpretation of you know, players... and It's a throwback to this panic that there was a couple of years ago. Players with the ball, have certain obligations to play in the play-the-ball process. The play-the-ball process is fundamental to the whole game. The defence has to set on the where the play-the-ball is. I get so frustrated when I see players walk off the mark and take advantage, and then occasionally they get pulled up and sent back to play the ball. Well, in the rule book it says that's a penalty. You move off the mark, then it's a penalty. Um, if you don't control the player with the ball, You've got little control over the defensive line. And if I was a defending player, I'd be really frustrated at the moment that where do you stand? Because players do not play the ball where they're tackled and they deliberately move off the mark. And it's probably not such a rule change because the rule's there. It's the interpretation of doing that. Um, But throughout my career, I've seen some great rule changes. The 40-20, spectacular. I think the removing the corner post out of play has created this marvellous athletic um, uh, performance by the players to, to score tries. For sure. Um, I'm not too sure about the seven tackle business from kicks. So I think that's probably something that I'd like to see change back, uh, that you don't get a seventh tackle. Yeah. Um, I particularly... Where, where the ball I don't know if you if you give this any thought, Greg, but I mean, my biggest grievance about the seven tackle rule is 
it sort of came in to stop people kicking the ball dead from 50 out, like when Jamie Soward used to do it to get to the defensive line set. Could they not say if you've kicked it dead from trying to thread a grubber through in the in the 20 meter zone, for example, it's just back to where it was? I, I thought maybe it should be better to penalise them if they've kicked it when they're 50 metres out. Game is you've got a bunker system there, and, and I know that goes against what I've just been saying about the bunker, but it might happen once or twice a game. If in the view, and, and everything in the game is in is in the view of the referee or the, the bunker, um, if the kick is kicked in a way that it's a non-competitive um, uh, kick, i.e., it's just kicked dead, then seven tackles would apply if it's just kicked dead. If it doesn't, it's an attacking kick. Yep. Uh, that could result in a try, then you don't get the seven tackles from there. It just seems like a heavy penalty when it's just gone dead and it was almost yeah, a try. It just doesn't seem to ring true. So, yeah, I think you've, you've, got, you've got a good point I, there. I think, it, I think it was a panic decision made by people who were running the referees at the time to try and overcome an issue in the game that um, probably wasn't a, such a big issue. Yeah, fair uh, enough too. When it's all washed up, yeah. Um, in your time, Greg, I won't keep you for too much longer because I know you're That's a busy right. man. But um, you know, in your time refing, I was interested. We're a bit of an unconventional podcast at times. Was there any strange incidents that you can remember on the field? What was one of the strangest things you ever remember seeing, either from the crowd or from players? Oh, look, there's, there's been a whole lot of issues. One of the one of the problems we did have when I first started refereeing in first grade was that um, pl- people would run on the field um, as soon as the full time hooter went. And people would spectators were allowed to run on, and um, sometimes a penalty be given, and you have to clear um, the field of to take the penalty and all that sort of thing. So um, they tried to change that by stopping the the clock with five minutes to go. Yep. So nobody really knew when the the time was up. <laughs> um, I think you know the ability to 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 have a safe playing environment for not just the um, the players, but for the referees is really important. And uh, I remember one day at Redfern Oval, uh, which was a really um, interesting place to referee, let me tell you, <laughs> um, over the years. Um, I was doing uh, South and West, and, and we got invaded you know, right on full time. And um, there was a guy ran past me and bumped me in the in the back or in the side. Um, which felt like um, something sharp, you know. And, and I said when I came off the ground, I, I think somebody ran on with a knife. And I knew straight away, as soon as I said that, there's another time when I wish I'd had time to say things properly. Yep. Um, of course, then there was massive inquiry that, you know, a spectator ran on with a knife and all that sort of thing. But um, one of the other people came forward and said, I oh, know it was at the end of a flag. We saw the ref get hit with the flag so uh, it wasn't a knife but you know things like that uh you know they happen they happen on the spur of the moment and it's how you react to them i didn't react that well to it by saying that i thought it was a knife and you know probably um gave john quail um further reason to lose some more hair <laughs> but i guess yeah if he takes uh, you've got to take that as a uh, take that seriously as a potential don't you so are you saying that greg that you'd prefer to see that back again, the idea that, you know, the crowd can come onto the field after no, the no, game? No, 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 not, not, well, well after the game. Yeah. I think some, some clubs do it well. I think um, the new um, stadium at Parramatta allows people on the field. There's a hooter goes and they can come on. I think it's really good for kids to come onto the field, but you've got to get this um, environment safe, as safe as you can for 
uh, everybody involved in the game and then once they're in the safety of their dressing room then certainly allow people on the field. You know, um, talking about safety, Greg, there's a, a number of our listeners have um, campaigned to bring back the Biff and I know you've said it's an important thing to, to clean up the game and all those kind of things and I, I agree with you. Um, and I was wondering if there could be some middle ground where uh, a team allows a designated biffer. Um, so there's only one person who's allowed to bring on a Barney, only one and a half. Um, do you think that might fly in the modern game? I don't think that would get a start in the modern game, but um, it certainly would keep everybody happy. That uh, There's no doubt that people felt aggrieved when um, you know the Biff was removed from the game, for want of a better word. It was what everybody was brought up on. Yeah. Everybody was brought up on... You know, um, the early origins, there was a brawl in those every time, and test matches between Australia and England, there were brawls in those. You know, and it, it took a long time for that to get out of people's systems. You know, and I, I still talk to people, you know, probably a little bit older than me, that bemoan the fact that there isn't Biff in the game. But it, the rugby league is a is a physically confronting game, and the collisions that take place in it, um, you know, can be as hard as you like. But as long as players um, aren't hit in the head, um, the head is the, the key factor, or aren't hit um, when they're being blindsided, or, or hit when they're being blindsided, I yeah. should say, um, when they can't defend themselves. They're the, they're the problems. And, um, you know, is it any worse, I, I argue sometimes, is it any worse than some of that grappling that was done back when I was on the Match Review Committee where we are having to put players out for twisting people's necks and heads and, and you know, coming down on the back of their head and, you know, potentially putting them in a position where they could break their neck, you know, and that all comes out of a result because players are looking to get over the top physically of their opponent and, um, you know, it's the balance that's got to be the thing and I don't think we'll see the Biff back in in our lifetime but it certainly um, should never be just brushed aside in terms that it's, it's no good for the game because everybody in the first um, 80 or 90 years of the game were brought up that that was a physically confronting game. I agree with you, mate, and I actually think there is credence to the idea that, you know, because they're not allowed to throw a punch these days, that the aggression comes out in other ways. And and in a way, I'd almost argue that, you know, the more uh, indirect or cowardly um, hitting of players when they're not front on or twisting of necks, I actually think that's more dangerous, to be completely honest. But... Um, you know, that's just me. We've seen players, yeah, we've seen players taken out when they're they're in the air kicking, you know, and that's just incredibly dangerous to to see that happen. And you know, and and the last couple of weeks we've seen actual players headbutting, so that's that's been a bit interesting oh, phenomenon that's crept back into the game. During in the South game, we actually had the Biff come back momentarily, just yeah, yeah, so just, it was interesting to back, see. That was, but I don't think we'll see too much of it more in the future. <laughs> um, Greg, now I understand you're a wedding celebrant as well these days. Is I that am. correct? Yeah. Yep. Um, why do you, why do you choose jobs with so much public pressure on them? No, <laughs> <laughs> um, it was just something that I, I got involved because I used to do a lot of public speaking and um, host. I used to host weddings, and I thought to myself, well, I, there's a little something missing from my bow there, and that's to, to actually do the ceremony. But I love doing because I love meeting people, and. Um, it's been a very rewarding part of my life for the last 10 years to be able to, to, to have um, share, you know, such a happy occasion with, um, with families. And everybody remembers, though, they all come up to me and Uncle Jim comes up or um, 
even Aunt Martha will come up and say, oh, I remember when you refereed South versus West and you did this and did that. You know, it's amazing that people don't forget. You're always in the, you're in, um, imprinted in people's minds. I know that's a, <laughs> a funny thing, isn't it? Because I guess, you know, when you're on a, a stage, whether it's a wedding or, or an NRL match, like the, people do remember, like they're going to have a reason to remember you. So I'd imagine, yeah, do you ever get approached much out in public? Oh, occasionally, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of involved in um, public life. Um, at Blacktown Council, I, I meet a lot of the community there and they all seem to remember something about um, those involved. I think it's the beard. They remember the beard and say, <laughs> oh, you're the only ref that had a beard. There you go. Yeah. And look, one if... bloke yelled out to me one day, said, Bill Harrigan, you were the best ref. <laughs> and I yelled back, I'm, I'm not Bill Harrigan. You should have taken the rap, Greg, just whatever it is. <laughs> any compliment that comes your way, take it. Um, a, right. Any of our listeners might want to get in touch if they've got a wedding coming up. Yeah. Is there? A, what's your Certainly. best way to be reached? Uh, at, at Greg McCallum Celebrant, www.gregmccallumcelebrant.com.au. And I tell you, it'll be great if someone got hitched on the back of the Voluntary Tackle podcast. That would just make my week. So we'll see. That'd be good. We'll <laughs> see Let's if it happens. it happens, mate. Yeah. Just to finish off, if you're if you're okay with it, I just had a couple of fan questions. Um, sure. on, come through on Twitter. The first one comes from Mark Wyatt, and uh, he wants to know why the referees don't enforce a rule that keeps trainers off the field unless they're absolutely needed. Is that a bit of a gripe of yours? Oh yeah, and when I was in England, we got more. Um, correspondence from fans about um, trainers being on the field than anything else in the game and it, it was every year I was there most people uh, are sick of it um, I don't understand why they need to be on there um, and I understand the game but I don't understand why they need to be there uh, I think it looks bad I think it sends out a, um, a really ordinary look for the game and I know that they've had a couple of goes at trying to restrict it mm. in, in recent times but I, I really would wish that someone to get hold of it and, and try and change it. I wouldn't actually mind it, Greg, so long as they were kind of open um, open game for a player to put a shoulder charge on. So you can be out well, there, but if someone like Sam Burgess comes through and puts a hit on you, then it's all good. Yeah, I'm surprised there hasn't, you know, there hasn't been some players, some trainers and physios knocked over. Um, one of the issues we had when I was on the match review committee, not so much in first grade, but in the lower grades, we had... Um, there'd be a, a brawl take place and you'd have the trainers run on there and get in between the players, which yep. uh, is not, not a good thing. You know? no, that not was only ever going to end one way. Yep, with a few unconscious trainers. <laughs> Greg, mate, um, I'm going to wrap it there, but you've been uh, very generous of your time. Thanks so much for coming on the Voluntary Tackle today. Um, really Anytime, appreciate it. Pleasure. Mate, and um, hopefully we can speak down the track. That'd be lovely. But now it's time for some Voluntary Tackle Q&A. We've had plenty of questions roll into the show and we thank you very much for that and I'll certainly do my best to answer those burning, vexing inquiries for you now. Uh, But just a note to those who specifically ask for a shower cream pubic hair burning performance, no way, Jose. That's for Patreon subscribers and you fucking know that. All right, the first question comes from a rather irate Jeffrey Smith, who asks, if Cleary is such a shit coach, then why were the West Tigers better under him last year than since Maguire took over? Well, Jeff, considering the Tigers finished ninth last year and are currently 10th, I'm not convinced you can make that judgment just yet, to be honest. For me, the real question for Tigers fans is this. Would you prefer a coach who looks dazed and confused or one that looks more like an angry and less spelt version of Jason Statham? 
Look, Jeff, I acknowledge these choices aren't exactly enticing. Uh, it's like being asked, which object would you prefer to repeatedly ram up your anus? A Tamagotchi or an Atari Lynx? Neither option seems especially palatable, and I think most people would elect simply not to be a fan of the Tigers anymore before being anally penetrated with early 90s entertainment tech. I hope that covers all of your concerns, Jeff. Next up, we have a question from Gavin who asks, Who got more triggered after Origin? Was it Blues fans or Manly fans because DCE got picked as Queensland captain? Look, uh, this is a relatively easy one, Gavin. Uh, Blues fans is the correct answer. Uh, Manly fans were actually quite happy to have DCE out of the state for a while. With the turfing out of Tony Abbott recently at the last election and the absence of Cherry, Manly's smug numbers were actually down to record levels last week. Coincidentally, it also saw ticket sales for Taronga Zoo skyrocket as people north of the bridge were forced for the first time in a while to pay and see the giraffes, which was obviously quite the boon for the local economy. Uh, I hope that answers your question, Gavin. The next question comes from Media Watch Mario. G'day, Mario. Uh, he's pondering... Why are hippos so much cooler than rhinos? Personally, Mario, I'm not sure they are cooler as such, uh, but they certainly are more hardcore than rhinos. I mean, any animal that can callously murder more Africans a year than Idi Amin managed to during his reign of terror must be feared. Now, that obviously doesn't make them cool. Um, that would be a very racist endorsement. Uh, but for a hippo's ability to carry out acts of mass murder with ease, well, to those murderous bastards, I doff my coffee to them. The next question comes from Sandy Hunter, who asks, Channel 9 making Freddie talk to Gus during Origin. What a joke. Was this a contractual agreement? Great question, Sandy, and I completely agree with you. It's just awkward more than anything else. The game was on the line on Wednesday and the Blues were under the pump and Freddie was forced to put on a brave face for the cameras. I mean, he can't exactly say, I'm shitting it and I hope Cody Walker decides to attend the game mentally soon. He's between a rock and a hard place, really, and it's just weird for the viewer. Seems a bit like holding a public hanging and then interviewing the family of the recently executed as they dangle fidgeting on the end of the rope, how they thought the execution went. I mean, what can you say when people you love are getting murdered in front of your eyes? Quote the VB Hard Work Index about the hangman? I don't think so. Now it's time for our interview with former South player Sean Garlick. Hi, Sean speaking. G'day, Sean. It's Eamon here from the Voluntary Tackle, mate. How are you going? No worries, mate. Look, thank you for um, sparing some time, mate. I know you're a busy man um, for coming onto the show. Really, pre- I guess just to start off, you wear so many hats, mate. You're, you were an NRL player. You're a policeman, businessman, actor, involved in football operations. You're on the judiciary panel. Mate, I can barely run an NRL podcast. You certainly know how to make a man feel really bad about himself. Oh, thanks, mate. Look, I suppose uh, I've just always been busy. It's just something, even as a kid, you know, I have lots of things going on. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Yes, I also, I'm also, add to that, I'm president of our local golf club out here at Little Bay, the Coast Golf Club, so which uh, takes up a, a little bit of more time, but it's a passion of mine as well. Of course you are, Sean. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've probably got a spot on the UN as well. <laughs> not quite, no, not quite, mate. Mate, um, I guess just on your league career, can we? I guess a good starting point might be to just ask how you got involved in rugby league um, and, and I guess who your junior team was. Sure, mate. Well, I suppose uh, I just grew up uh, being a rugby league tragic, watching it on TV. I remember uh, in mid-70s, I suppose, in my first memories of rugby league, watching, remember the Roosters uh, playing in those grand finals in the, in the mid-70s when I was only a five- and six-year-old. 
Uh, and then, um, you know, I took up rugby league about the same time. Uh, believe it or not, I, I actually was uh, living in Rockdale at the time with the family and I got taken down to Arctic Scots by my father. It was my first uh, taste of rugby league, playing for Arctic Scots. And then uh, my father got relocated at work and we got uh, moved out to La Perouse and uh, I became a, a member of the La Perouse United uh, Junior Rugby League team in the South Sydney competition. And, um, and, and became a South Sydney tragic uh, back then in what was, uh, and still is a, a very, very strong uh, junior rugby league competition in the South District. And Sean, what were your memories of playing in, around La Perouse? Because um, as you said, it's, uh, it's almost a religion around those parts, isn't it, rugby league? Uh, look, it is. And I, I was very lucky in, in, in some respects. I went to a primary school, La Perouse Primary, which is a very tiny primary school. We only just had enough players to form a team. and um, But we ne- were never, ever beaten. You know, I played the likes of Graham Lyons, you might remember when I played Origin yep. uh, from the Rabbitohs, and I played with the youngest uh, Ella brother, Timmy Ella, and, and just a lot of natural young Koori kids that were, were just uh, rugby league stars, you know, uh, could do anything on the field. And we never lost a game right to our primary school, we won state knockouts, and then I went to a, a high school called Matraville High, which is which was famous for rugby union, had all the Ella brothers playing in there, Russell Fairfax, and... Um, and, and the Walkers, and, and um, we, we, were, we were a bunch of league players and, and were forced to play rugby union because that's all they played there, and we virtually won everything there as well. Um, just just uh, league players playing union, and it was it was a great start to, um, I suppose, competitive footy, and, uh, and then I made my way through the junior ranks and eventually got graded in the Rabbitohs. Uh, it was their first under-21s team in 1988, uh, and, and was lucky to, to uh, go into a pretty... A pretty good team there as well, and, and played with the likes of Manoa Thompson and Rick and Steve Stone and Darren Brown and Rod Maybon and uh, Scott Wilson, Blake Butcher. And we ended up winning the comp um, in 1989, the same year. The first grade uh, were minor premiers at the Rabbitohs, so it was a very uh, strong uh, club at the time, uh, back in the late um, 80s. And then I made my first grade debut the following year as a as a 20 year old. Um, in first grade uh, against against Penrith out of Penrith Park. Mate, uh, I was going to ask you about your, your debut game, but just before I get to that, um, were you always a hooker even in those junior teams or did you move around a bit? Look, I was a hooker or a halfback uh, in, in the very early days, I suppose. By the time I got to about, I don't know, 16, um, I pretty much focused on being a hooker. And in those days, you know, the leather football, I remember... Um, uh, I was trialling for, it was SG Ball at the time, and it came down to two hookers, it was Geordie Peets and myself. And um, what they did was, uh, the two coaches, they couldn't split us, and so they, they, they packed us down in uh, opposing scrums, and, and it was who, who won the most scrums. It was who, who was the best rake. That's amazing. So they, yeah, and so as it turned out, Geordie was better, he was, and so he got the nod ahead of me. And, um, you know, and I sort of... Um, I was sort of behind him for the next few years, but there were some really strong, there were some really strong teams and players. I remember when I first got graded. Um, uh, well, Jordy Peets, I, I was lucky; he pretty much went to Canterbury almost straight away. But obviously, uh, Mario Fennick was the was the first grade hooker. Um, there was also another hooker in front of him by the name of Paul Judd. Uh, there was Craig Weeks. There was Stephen Fennick, who was a year older than me, um, and it, I was just lucky that. Um, Sort of things you know can come your way, and uh, you know the planets aligned. There, there was injuries, there was suspensions, there was all sorts of things. And I got my crack um, when really there was probably four or five hookers ahead of me at the club at the time. 
And that, that's an interesting point as well, isn't it, Sean, that the fact that the hooker role has changed so much. It's interesting that you say that, um, you know, it was determined on who could be the best rake when that's probably not really a part of the modern day uh, role for the hooker position, is it? Oh, it's not at all. It's changed completely. Uh, look, I'm still a little bit um, mixed on, on whether I sort of, you know, like the way the scrums are these days. But I suppose when we look back, there was, it was a, lot of, a lot of disruption. You know, they were... You know, the scrums would pack it and come out the same tunnel. You'd pack it again and go through, it, go through the other side. They'd pack it again. <laughs> there was penalties, you know, I suppose, every second time. So, look, I suppose the way it is now, it's much more pleasing on the eye. Although I remember it was hard work. You'd come out of the scrum exhausted. And you'd get into trouble if you didn't jog to the scrum. Uh, nowadays, when the ball goes into touch, everyone straight away goes into the walk. Uh, you get the hell blasted out of you if you walk to a scrum in the, in the early 90s, for sure. That's crazy, isn't it? Because that's almost a tactic these days to get a bit of a blow uh, from kicking it out. So interesting that you say that. I don't want it to be a digression, Sean, but I do know that you've also done a bit of acting as well. Was that ever a serious career path for you or was it always going to be rugby league? Oh, look, it was, it was something I did as a kid. I started as a 10-year-old uh, doing commercials and you know bit parts in movies and miniseries and, and, and Australian serials and uh, I suppose the two of them, you know, which was quite a good little hobby to have on the side, it was good pocket money and um, there was one, they, they, were, they were casting for a movie, it was going to be the biggest budget Australian movie ever made in 1985, I was a 15 year old and um, it was a Rachel Ward starred and it was, was based on a, uh, loosely based on a true story where one teacher school got kidnapped in uh, Victoria in rural Victoria. Anyway, I went through all the auditions, went for about four or five of them. Anyway, I came down to the last uh, two kids uh, for this starring role. Anyway, um, I had to fly to Melbourne on this Saturday to meet with the director and all the other kids that they'd assembled from around Australia. And um, it, it coincided with a, with a, a state knockout um, final uh, that was going to be played at the SCG. And so I had to tell, um, I had to tell them that I couldn't go. Anyway, I remember my agent at the time was absolutely furious said, look, you'll never get another chance. I think this is a chance of a lifetime. You say no, but you'll never work in this industry ever again. You know, I said, so, but we've got, a, we've got this grand final. We're playing at the SCG. It was a huge... I said, I just can't, you know. I, I, I chose rugby league. Anyway, the funny thing was the director rang me on the Monday and said, oh, Sean, I heard you, you're no longer interested in this job. I said, no, no, it's not that. But I had to play football on the weekend. Anyway, he said, well, what about if you were to come down this weekend? So I went down the following weekend and I got the movie and... Uh, it was, a, it was a great start. It was, you know, uh, I started opposite Rachel Ward and Asher Keddy and uh, Rebecca Rigg at the time. It was, and it was the biggest budget Australian movie. It was called Fortress, and uh, I still have it on DVD. That's amazing, isn't it? These kind of like sliding door moments that exist. What drew you away towards rugby league other than acting? Was it ever something that you seriously contemplated, um, you know, following through into adulthood? Look, what I did, I, I did until the age of about 21 uh, or 22, where... Uh, I'd get a call and said, did you, did you want to do this or did you want to do that? And if it, if it coincided with the training, and, uh, and then I did it. And in fact, um, you might remember the, there was a show on TV called Heartbreak High. I do uh, indeed, Sean. Time. I remember it well. Through the 90s, anyway, I I was I worked in the police the whole time I, I played football until Super League came in and I had to drop back to one day a week. But funnily enough, I got uh, cast as a policeman in this, uh, in this role and... Um, and, and the storyline was that there was this sort of out of control sort of runaway kid um, in, in the show, and, and believe it or not, it was Craig Wing. Wing is about a, a thirteen-year-old. Oh no way! So, uh, 
it was it was just amazing when um, when he came, when he you know uh, progressed through the ranks at Rabbitohs and in '98 he was the he was the youngest player in the team and I was the oldest and uh, we met up again. Look, I, I loved it. It was it was a terrific sort of um, a hobby. What it did do it, it forced you into you know uh, presenting yourself and you know and, and speaking in front of a you know a group of, of strangers. You had to you know go and read your lines at a, at a casting or. A, an audition, um, and so it made you, it gave you confidence, you know, which I, I think helped me later on in life, especially, um, you know, when I became the captain of the team, you know, um, and communication and being, um, you know, just being out there and, and being confident was, was a really big part of that role. And Sean, I'm assuming that uh, there might have been a few players when you were, for, for example, I can see the timelines map onto when you were doing Heartbreak High, you were also playing footy. Did your teammates ever give you a stick over that? <laughs> you know, and uh, I remember actually turning up for one day, and it was after a game, and I got a, I got a bump on the nose, and I uh, had two black eyes. And, and when I turned up for this role, they had to put the makeup on so thick to cover these two black eyes that um, my face looked a bit green when it came out uh, <laughs> later on from the black, from the black shining through. But yeah. look, it was, uh, it, it was, it was a really good, uh, it was a really good uh, time. Oh, look, I even got some calls later in life. I remember I was at the. I remember I was at the Roosters in 97, so I was a 28-year-old, and I got a call from a director who was a mad Rooster supporter. He said, we're doing a show, and it was based on uh, the, the story on uh, uh, Christopher Dale Flannery when he got sent to jail, and he was a... Um, um, it was called Tough Nuts, is the, the show, and, okay. they needed a, and they needed a, a prison warden who, um, who who sort of roughed him up. He said, mate, are you still, are you still doing this sort of thing? I said, mate, I haven't done this for about eight years. <laughs> See, would you happen to come along and play this role as a prison warden? Anyway, I did, and um, you know, so I was still playing football then. I copped a lot of sticks, but it, it still airs from time to time now. It pops still. <laughs> oh, do you get royalties from that? Look, funnily enough, I, I, I got I did this lots of noodles commercial when I was I just turned seventeen. It was it was the first day I got my license. I remember, so I was able to drive to this. Uh, to the shoot anyway um, it was a one day's a lots of noodles ad and it ran for about seven years and <laughs> I got paid every single year that it ran it was just it was money for nothing I couldn't believe it but how good is this industry you get paid year after year for not actually doing anything how good's that uh, if only that could happen in rugby league Sean correct yeah if only that was the case yeah. <laughs> uh, unfortunately when you can no longer uh, get on the field or no longer train they, uh, in this day and age, they soon uh, ship you off. Mate, um, back to footy world. Uh, tell me a bit about your debut game. Um, that, that first day you uh, played first grade, what, what was that like? Look, um, I came into the team in 1990. The Rabbitohs won the minor premiership the year before. So it was still a star-studded team. But people might remember we actually won the Wooden Spooners. went from minor premiers to Wooden Spooners in 1990. And on this day, I made my debut... I think it was, it was midway through the year with 22 rounds in those days, and I made uh, my debut round 11 uh, against Penrith Panthers out there at Penrith Park. Had the likes of Mark Guyer and Greg Alexander and uh, Roycey Simmons and um, some some uh, a, a young Brad Fittler. Um, it was, and they they flogged us. They beat us about 40 points to six or something like that. It was. Uh, I remember I remember Mark Guyer who was just huge picked me up and, and dropped me down on, on, on my tailbone, actually. Came from behind, uh, got me to great big bear hug and slammed me back down. I landed on my backside, payment right up and right up my back into the back of my head. And 
he looked over the top and he said, come on, stop acting. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was obviously aware of your background. I, I guess I'm that's a, a good segue, mate. I mean, you were a, a, a smaller man in a, in a big man's game, I guess. What did you have to do as a player to cope with these giant bodies like MG coming at you week after week? Look, I, in those days, it was about um, um, a bit more fitness. You know, obviously, the, 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 the interchange was what, when, what, it was... when I first came to first grade, Danny chose... You might remember it was two fresh reserves and the other two had to come from reserve grade. Yep. Um, but once once the change was made, you couldn't you couldn't come back up again. So um, being a smaller man, I really had to rely on the bigger blokes getting tired towards the end of each half. You know, um, which is which is a bit of a sad element of the game that's been lost these days. Um, with the eight interchanges these days, you're always you know you're running it always the fresh defensive lines. You know, and fresh marker defence. Yeah. Whereas back in those days, you could rely on. You know, a big block of ropes or uh, zero or, you know, a big spud carol, you know, once you got the mail in all that. They'd get a bit tired, you know, big chief. They'd, they'd naturally get a bit tired as the half wore on. And that was the time when the little hookers and little halves got a chance to exploit gaps around the rucks, which uh, just don't exist as much anymore. You, you've got to have the speed of David Cook now to really uh, take advantage of those gaps that are just so much smaller these days. And it seems only fair, doesn't it, Sean, that, um, you know, they've got the, the size and the strength that the little men have got to be brought into the game as well. Uh, they've reduced the interchange over the years slightly, which I'm, I'm assuming from what you're saying, you'd like to see that interchange reduced even more? I would, yeah. I mean, there's been talk that they're going to bring it back to six. Yeah. Immediately, that makes it a bit more, more difficult for the biggest blokes, you know. Uh, you've only got... A, there's been plenty of uh, stats that have been put out these days on just how much bigger players are these days. I mean, I think that's just naturally the case. Uh, kids are bigger these days. They're the biggest people. They're just, they're just bigger all around. But um, it certainly plays into the hands of uh, the big Polynesians who uh, struggle with the endurance, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, that part of the game, but are just so dynamic. You know, and I suppose... Uh, it will bring the little bloke back a little bit more. Um, the, other, the other big thing that sort of pushed the little bloke out is the, the, the wrestle in the tackle these days. Uh, like I, I was known as a, as a legs tackler, you know, and in this day and age, uh, if you tackle around the legs, it's a quick play to ball, uh, which defensive lines just can't contend with. Yep. Contend with. Um, I've been an advocate of, of um, really rewarding one-on-one tackles, you know, which, which would really go towards... Um, you know, the gang tackle, the wrestle, and the injuries that are occurring when you've got two, three, and four in the tackle. Yeah. I mean, all, all players are coached these days to catch the first guy. The second guy comes in over the top and holds and holds, and then the third guy comes in around the legs and brings them down. And it's that third guy in when uh, the player's stationary and pretty much defenceless, you know, coming down and falling awkwardly, that I think contributes a lot to our, a lot to our injuries. Whereas the old one-on-one legs tackle, it was... It was as exciting as a, as a, a player making a break, you know, a, a cover tackle or, or just the one-on-one where the, where the little bloke brings down the big fella, whether it's from Mark or from in the, in the line, was it was a, something we just don't see anymore, you know, which is, uh, I think, an element of the game that's really been lost. I agree with you, mate. And, and it's funny, I thought the, the legs tackle was completely dead until Jake Trebojevic turned up. And he's got a bit of a knack of being able to affect the the legs tackle in the modern game and and it's extremely effective it doesn't seem to um lead to a really quick play the ball so who knows it might it might still make a return yeah well jake jake i mean he's a big fella he's big and strong and he cuts him in half and he's, his tackles invariably end up being a dominant tackle exactly Whereas, yeah uh, the, legs, the legs tackle you end up low and hits the ground hard look all they need to do is bring in a simple a simple rule that says a one-on-one legs tackle uh becomes a dominant tackle 
And you can imagine that what that would do um, to an, a, an attacking set. If, if the first guy was brought down and it became a, do, a dominant tackle, then it affects the whole set. Yeah. And so what you'd, be doing, what, you, what you'd be doing is players would be looking to offload it before getting tackled one-on-one, which, would, um, which would also add a little bit more variety rather than, you know, I think these days we can be criticised that it's hit up, hit up, hit up, you know, for a kick or hit up, hit up for a, for, for a play wide, but uh, it can be a little predictable. Mate, I think there's some pretty good ideas in there. Um, just back on your career, I know in, in 94, I think it was, you moved across from your beloved Souths to enemy territory, started playing for the Roosters for the next four seasons. Can you quickly walk me through, I guess, how that club change came about? Look, it was uh, pretty controversial at the time, for people to remember. I was at the Rabbitohs and um, uh, had agreed to a, a contract in, in 94 again. Now, um, for the 94 season, uh, in those days, uh, contracts were just handshakes. You know, you, you, you have an agreement, you shake your hand, and quite often you wouldn't even sign a contract until midway through or midway through the, the pre-season, you know. Or mm. I remember they'd come to you and say, look, you better sign a contract because you won't be registered this week, the first comp game this week. Wow. So that sort of uh, reminds you to sign a deal. What had happened is I'd had a, um, a handshake deal with uh, Terry Parker, who was the general manager at the time, and then... Um, they, they completely changed their, their football office staff and Alan Jones was given full control. And Alan, to his credit, he came in and said, Sean, look, um, I'm bringing Dean Schifoletti from Illawarra Steelers. Um, I see him as a better player than you and I'm not going to need you. And um, which was which was um, uh, news to me and was, and was highly and hugely disappointing. And so um, I just, I had to move on and um, I went over to the Roosters and actually had to trial him. though I played uh, 55 first grade of the Rabbitohs at the time. I went over to the Roosters and trial for a spot and ended up getting one um, um, just in the, in the squad and uh, it took me half a year until I played first grade again and then as luck would have it I uh, was made captain uh, the following year when, when Phil Gould came. Uh, Mark Murray left and Phil Gould came in and uh, I was made captain. Um, it's it's so all fade isn't it? But it's funny yeah, as you say sliding doors um, I remember we played the Rabbitohs we played on Anzac Day, it was before the big Anzac Day clashes of today, and Brewster played the Rabbitohs at the SFS, and we, I think we beat them 66-0, uh, which was which was bittersweet for me. I mean, my father and the whole family were still uh, tragic Rabbitohs supporters. Yep. Here I was over the, over the Roosters, and we, and we beat the Rabbitohs 66-0, which was uh, uh, never forgotten. And how did you play in that in that thrashing, Sean? Would you, is it a particularly good moment for you as well, like in terms of your oh, personal look, form? Oh, look, I, I was part of it. Um, it scored plenty of tries. Um, you know, I was happy, and, but uh, obviously you look to prove a point when you move on, and uh, that was that was quite satisfying for me, I must say. I'm, I'm interested uh, as well, Sean. You mentioned about that Alan Jones chat. It just sounds so uh, candid uh, compared to what you hear these days. Uh, someone coming in and literally just saying, "I think this other bloke's better than you." Was it really a, a, as as honest as that? How did that conversation yeah, well, go? Was, yeah, and that's why I couldn't I couldn't fault Alan. I mean. Rugby league is very uh, subjective. Uh, what, what one person thinks might be completely different to what another person's opinion is. He came in to look of, you know, and, and the Rabbitohs didn't have a great year in 93, and so there was agitation for, for change. And so Alan came in, uh, he brought a new coach in, Ken Shine, he said, we're going to change things up. There were players that have been there for a while. And, um, I mean, it was also, funny enough, it was the year, uh, the rule changed from five metres to ten metres. And so he... Um, uh, he, he, he wasn't sure whether whether 
uh, what that would do to the game uh, in terms of uh, just style of play. And uh, he was he was of the belief that Ben Shikletti, he was a good player. Um, he came to the Rabbitohs and you know, it, was, it was a bit of a change to the to the game. And um, and there was you know, there was a lot more room around dummy half straight away because the defensive line was twice as far back. And did you enjoy that as a hooker, mate? Um, the rule change from five to ten did that give you a little bit more oh, room to great. play around with? Absolutely, it was fantastic. Although the big fellas had a bit more wind up. Um, <laughs> yeah, yin so and yang. That's right, there were some good components to get out of dummy half, but the boys were coming a bit, a bit faster now as well. Yeah, right. Um, what about the coaching, uh, Sean, in your career? Who, who would you say is the best coach you've ever played under? Uh, undoubtedly, it was uh, Phil Gould. Um, when, I, when I left the Rabbitohs, I mean, my first coach was George Piggott, who was, who was very inspirational. He was a great um, old-school um, coach. Uh, moved on to Frank Curry, uh, who was tactically very good, but didn't really... Didn't really well... I wasn't quite sure um, what to think of. I, mean, I was only my second first grade coach. Then yeah. when I moved to uh, the Roosters, I had Mark Murray, uh, the Queensland halfback, and tactically he was he was great. Um, and it, but, it, but a really good man manager. I just thought how the, the way he ran his training sessions, the way the club was set up, how competitive he had it amongst players was, was a real um, a, a real a learning exercise. And then when Gus came in in '95, he just uh, it was like it was like I just got to finish grade. It was like, and, and what the way he, um, the way he had everybody going in the one direction, and everyone convinced that if you just did what he said, you'd win the game. You know, there wasn't anybody that knew other players better than him. Uh, there's no one did more research than him. And uh, look, he just he, he was just a, a masterful coach, and uh, you know, a pleasure a pleasure to be around. And what do you think it was about Gus, mate, that um, you know put him ahead of the pack? It, it, was he innovative in a in a way, or was it more just he knew how to manage men? Look, it, it was. Uh, he, look, I've never heard anyone speak better than Gus. He, he, he could tell you a story that would have players tears. You know, he, he had, you know he, he was just so good at, at setting the scene and getting the most out of players. You know, uh, quite often you go into a you go into a, a meeting after a game where. Coach, would have, uh, he'd have a different opinion to you, and you'd, you'd go in there, and every time he'd come out going, "No, I'm wrong. He's right, and I'm wrong." Every single time. Wow. It was just, it was just his knowledge of the game, uh, his knowledge of. I mean, he, he knew more about you than you did. Um, <laughs> if, he, if he didn't, he certainly convinced you that he did. Um, and that, that was his, that was probably his greatest, his greatest uh, weapon was his just his ability to convince you that if you did it this way, you yeah. win, win games, you know. And if you didn't, you wouldn't. Um, and it's amazing how powerful that can be, whether it be in sport or in business. When you have your employees, when you can have your staff all going in the same direction, all you know, um, all in agreement, in agreement of what needs to happen to win, um, you're halfway there. Mate, um, I know I'm co- I'm conscious of time, so I don't want to keep you too much longer. But who was the best player you think you played with over your career? Is there someone that stands um, out there? Without a doubt, it would have been Brad Fittler. Okay. Um, which was strange because there probably wasn't a more casual guy than him either. Um, <laughs> like he really knew how to have a good time back then. Um, you know, it was a different era, of course, and, and players then really it, it was great fun playing first grade. You know, um, uh, there was nowhere near the scrutiny that there is now. Um, there wasn't ever the headlines that there are now. Not not that uh, we were better behaved, not at all. In fact. There was far worse up behaviour back then than there ever is now, but there just wasn't an appetite for the media to report on it, you know. And um, there was a lot of characters in the game. Freddie was one of them, but one thing 
when, when it was game on, it was game on. Yeah. Uh, as soon as you crossed that line at training, no one trained harder. There was no one more serious and no one more committed. But then uh, as, soon as, you, as soon as you were away from training or away from the game, no one knew how to have a better, a better time than Freddie either. It sounds like a, it's a, a wonderful mix, isn't it? And you wonder, um, I guess, with someone like Brad Fittler, in terms of, you know, inspiring his team, was he good at being able to, because um, he obviously went on to become, you know, a, a captain for many years as well. Is he someone that was uh, a good inspiration of men or did people sort of more just follow his actions? Because, you know, at, at times he wasn't sort of necessarily known for his inspirational speeches, was he? He was known for his... No, you're spot on. Oh, look, he, he was very much a captain that led by example, you know, he'd do things on the field that just weren't, he didn't think were possible, you know, and he was also just so tough, you know, he was able to play with, with injuries, you know, chronic groin injuries and all sorts of problems that would uh, should have sidelined him, he just, uh, he just played, you know, he was able to perform at a high level regardless of the circumstances around him, um, which was just so inspirational. Um, sure. Look, I'm, I'm, I'll probably uh, wrap it up pretty soon, mate, because I know you have to go. But um, I'd love to have another chat with you down the track if we could, sure, mate. mate. Before you go, um, I'm a big fan of your pies, mate. Um, my, my wife's not your biggest fan though, because every time I go to Coles, I throw quite a few Garlow's pies in the trolley. Probably makes up twenty percent of our household bill, if you must know. But um, how's the pastry empire going? Mate, it keeps us certainly very busy. I've got nine direct family members uh, working in the business. Uh, my mother, my father, my brother. My sister, three sons, wife. Um, it's just, it made it, it's become just a wonderful thing to be able to run a family business um, and, and to grow it the way we have over 18 years now. It's just, a, it's just a pleasure, mate. And and I'm still learning. I uh, didn't know anything about business when we first started. It. Not only have we never run a business before, I didn't even know anyone who had <laughs> ever run a business. And so we've literally made it up as we've gone along. But uh, it's been a steep learning curve, and there's still, uh, there's still plenty to come. Mate, well, I can tell you from uh, one particular fan, they're a hell of a pie, mate. The thin pastry in particular is what gets me in. I think that makes a good pie. So, um, yeah, keep up the good work, mate, and uh, hopefully we can have a chat down the, down the track because uh, that was really good. Yeah, will do. Thanks very much. Thanks, buddy. Well, folks, that about does it for the show today. Um, please, if you have time, go on iTunes and rate or comment on the show. Uh, we're also available on Twitter at The Voluntary Tackle, uh, also by Gmail, uh, which is thevoluntarytackle at gmail.com. They're all the modes that you can get to us. Uh, feel free to file in your abuse uh, and weed in the odd compliment every now and again just so we don't become suicidal. So until next time, just do what the West's Tigers would do and recruit a team whose average age is higher than the cast of Cocoon 2. Good night.